0: With the new Sinclair Spectrum Plus 3, I can be who I want to be. With the built-in disk drive, I can be the fastest rider off the grid. With the 128K memory, I can be the most powerful force in the universe. And you get six other free games and a free joystick. You're turning into a real computer expert. And at 199 pounds, I've saved the Earth. The new Sinclair Spectrum Plus 3 with built-in disk drive. Who would you like to be? Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Zach.
1: And I'm Seth.
0: And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers
1: that's right
0: that's right uh happy thanksgiving
1: <laughs> happy thanksgiving you know i actually always wanted to like i think i made this joke like a hundred episodes ago like just have like toilet noises or something and then like, yeah. have me like stump over to the co- mic i always kind of wanted to do stuff like that because it makes our studio seem more alive but yeah happy thanksgiving it was a it was a, a fun thanksgiving it we, was,
0: yeah, the Classic Gaming Brothers headquarters. We had all of our Classic Gaming Brothers family around, uh, eat, you know. Right. Mike was there. He he carved the turkey. Phil brought some meals from uh overseas. Barry was there regaling us about video games of the past and uh and, and I don't know. I think maybe Doug showed up.
1: <laughs> what about our staff?
0: <laughs> no, they're fired.
1: <laughs> no, none of our staff were fired.
0: Co- <laughs> well we don't pay them so
1: <laughs> yeah producer doug was just screaming at us the entire time yeah with
0: his big cigar you know he was like yeah. <laughs>
1: producer doug has a uh, if, if we're not recording we're not making money
0: yeah that's the that's the, and if we are recording we're not making
1: money <laughs> we're always a profitable business on producer doug's uh, accounting books
0: Ah, uh, anyway Seth yeah what have you been playing
1: well recently I've been playing Mass Effect 3 Ooh, the third one which is the third one in the Mass Effect series whoa what's great is I've always been really playing Mass Effect Legendary Edition but it counts for three games (laughs) wonderful (laughs) finally Matthias Shepard has made it to the final game Matthias Shepard to recap everyone is my infiltrator that I've been progressing through the Mass Effect series from Mass Effect 1 into two and now into three he's going to defeat all the reapers it's part of the legendary edition which was released last year mass effect 3 is a, a great game that we won't talk about how it ends however in the game you travel around the galaxy and you recruit war assets and i always cry when i uh, i run into thane in the hospital not a spoiler thane is literally always dying like when you recruit him that's just part of his story so in the hospital is a very sad moment probably the saddest moment in the game for me is is thane however i'm very excited to conclude the game game. This is the first time that I am doing a Liara romance. So the Liara romance is interesting. So Bioware always has romances in all their I would say most of their games. Uh perhaps all of them. Bioware is known for their romances. And in Mass Effect there are a number of people that you could romance. In Mass Effect two there is more. Like, I think Mass Effect 1, you can romance two people, either Caden or Ashley and Liara. In Mass Effect 2, you can romance pretty much almost everybody on the ship. And then Mass Effect 3, you can uh, romance more people, but less people than Mass Effect 2. Mass Effect 2 is like peak romanceable people. However, Liara is not able to be romanced in Mass Effect 2 in the base game. You're allowed to have a side romance scene in the layers of the Shadow Broker DLC. Uh, however, it's not really part of the true base game, which you are also not allowed. Well, you are. You can. you, But you shouldn't. If you want to keep a true Liar romance, you can't romance anybody else on the ship. Uh, except for Kelly Chambers, because she is a side lady. And you're allowed to romance her and romance anybody else. Because that's just how Mass Effect is. So what's fun... I bring this all up because the end of Mass Effect 2, you go to the suicide mission where you, right before the suicide mission, have a moment with whoever you're romancing. Uh, They come in, so it's Tally or Miranda or Garrus or Thane or Kelly Chambers or so on and so forth. However, if you stayed true to Liara, so if the flag was that you romanced her in Mass Effect 1 and you did not romance anybody in Mass Effect 2, Shepard touches a photograph of her (laughs) and then turns around yeah i love it i thought for a moment i guess i never saw the true cinematic i thought he sat on the bed with a picture of her uh which would have been great he just goes over to the desk where she is or where her picture is and he just like walks over to it like the camera cuts the shepherd it cuts to her picture it cuts the shepherd looking at her picture and then it cuts the shepherd leaving which is fun i guess kind of uh anticlimactic for those who are trying to stay true to liara but Mass Effect 3 is full of Liara, so she is back on the ship. She's running her Shadow Broker operation out of her office, which used to be Miranda's office, which used to be Captain Anderson's office. And you're on still the Normandy 2. The Normandy 2 got retrofitted by the Alliance, so it's got a bunch of new rooms, but it's still the same ship layout. What's funny is they, in Mass Effect Two, you can't go to the hangar bay. Engineering is the bottom floor. And in Mass Effect 3, you can go to the hangar bay. which you could do in Mass Effect 1. You could go to the hangar. In Mass Effect 3, they put the armory in the hangar bay, which is where it was in Mass Effect 1. But in 2, they put it up on the CIC deck, which is where Jacob would hang out. And they actually make a comment. When you go down to the armory, you're like, hey, it's back in the hangar bay. And they're like, the the Cortez, the guy who runs the armory, is like, yeah. He's like, I have no idea why Cerberus had the armory in like, the second floor of the ship. Yeah. You should have your armory next to the shuttle so you can grab your gun and then get on the shuttle. But I guess Cerberus really liked it if you wandered around. Or they did a lot of boarding because the CIC is kind of near where they the right. like the dock is. But which I guess is how you leave your ship primarily. So I'm very excited to conclude Mass Effect 3. Um, probably be I would say probably I'm probably gonna be done with it. Hopefully by the end of the year. And then I'll be thinking about my next long form RPG for my Steam Deck. I was thinking about re-picking up one of the fallouts. I was actually thinking about New Vegas since it runs buttery smooth. And I, I was thinking about making a cannibal run.
0: Ooh! You should make a cannibal run but instead of the last one, which I think you had the intelligence really low, you should make his intelligence very high and run him as uh, Hannibal the cannibal.
1: But the intelligence is really low because uh, the cannibal uses a um, a straight edge for shaving. Good. Uh, so he Sweeney Todd's people which he needs a lot of strength for. I might restart that because I have no idea what what that guy is doing in his game. I did play the game and I went in and I ran into a guy who wanted to teach me how to gamble and I lost because I didn't know how to play the game. So then I killed him and took my money back. And you ate him. I did. I don't have the cannibal perk apparently because I think it's like some second degree perk. I don't know. I'm going to definitely, I'll, I'll figure it out because I think I wanted Weird West and you could only take Weird West at character generation and then I was going to pick up the cannibal perk. I don't know. We'll figure it out. It's still, he's still early in the game. So Zach... What have you been playing? Seth, I've been playing Sonic
0: Battle, which was a 2003 game for the GBA developed by Sonic Team and published by Sega and THQ, depending on where you live. It's published by Sega in Japan and Europe, published by THQ in the United States. Sonic Battle is a Sonic game with a twist. Uh, This twist is that you get to punch other Sonic characters uh, in the face. Now, this is a bit different than uh, Sonic the Fighters, which was a Virtua Fighter style uh, Arcade game that featured Sonic characters. In this game, uh you play as like sprite Sonic characters. They're actually they look very similar to like the Sonic Advance games, which were for the GBA. But you're put on an isometric 3D environment where you can roam around in like multiple directions uh, and jump up on top of stuff to fight people. I didn't play a lot of it because frankly the graphics gave me a massive headache, and it just was not a fun time for Zach. <laughs> Maybe I'll revisit it sometime in the future, but uh, I have to. To find a way to not get motion sickness it's just something about like the 2d sprites layered on top of this really awful isometric 3d platform it just was not doing it for me
1: were you playing it on your rg353
0: i was but um and so you know it was playing actually like really smoothly and the yeah. light was fine but maybe i need to like blow up the screen a bit maybe i need to put it up on a like modern like a monitor or something like that try to i don't know something was it was just not it was not a good time for me
1: I was just having a thought because you said Sonic Fighters was kind of like Virtual Fighter. What if they made a Sonic Cop game, like Virtual Cop, and Sonic had to investigate crimes? They should call that
0: game Law and Order SVU, but the S stands for Sonic, <laughs> Sonic Victims Unit.
1: The Sonic Investigative Unit. S-I-U. Oh, perfect.
0: But then it's just a it's just a Law and Order game, but you play as Sonic. That's the theme. Yeah. Yeah. Dick
1: Wolf would write that.
0: Well, today we're not talking about Dick Wolf or Sonic the Hedgehog. That would be some episode. Now, today we're talking about the ZX Spectrum or the ZX Spectrum and its history. Uh, we've alluded to the Spectrum in the past uh, multiple times, and we thought now would be a good time to talk about the Spectrum and its history. So, our story begins with Sir Clive Sinclair, born in Ealing, England in 1940. Uh, Sir Clive came from a line of engineers. Both his father and his grandfather were actually shipbuilders, and his grandfather helped get a minesweeping device called a paravane to work. Due to the Blitz, Clive and his mother moved to Tainmouth. It's lucky that they did, as apparently shortly after they moved, their home in Ealing was destroyed by a bomb. Uh, His family moved again, a little bit after the war, to Bracknell in Berkshire County. Clive did apparently very well in math in school. However, he wasn't really interested in other things that kids were interested in. Uh, He had no interest in sports and he pretty much kept to himself his family also frequently moved around a lot so he wasn't really able to keep a friend group Uh, this was largely due to his father having financial hardships and often needing to find work one of Clive's first jobs out of school was selling mail-order electronic kits to hobbyists. And this actually proved to be a great venture. In 1961, Clive had registered Sinclair Radionics Limited as a company, and he actually wanted to register as Sinclair Electronics, but it was taken. And he also thought the name Sinclair Radio was a bad name, so he picked Sinclair Radionics, <laughs> which, that's a great name. He wasn't able to find capital for his company at first. So Clive joined the United Trade Press and began work as a technical editor for their Instrument Practice publication. And he was an assistant editor by March of 1962.
1: Sometime after 1969, when we went to the moon, Clive was ordering rejected parts from Semiconductors Limited. He repaired them and began designing a miniature radio that could be powered by hearing aid cells. By 1970s, Sinclair Radionics had begun producing these small radios as well as electronic calculators, miniature televisions, and a digital watch called Blackwatch. The Blackwatch, while arguably very cool looking for 1970s, was a failure for Sinclair, as they couldn't meet the demand, and the battery had a very short life. This cost them a lot of money, and from 1975 to 1976, they had to seek out more investors. Clive worked with National Enterprise Board, who acquired 43% interest in the company in 1976, but it's believed this money didn't help Sinclair Radionics, and it was too late. In 1979, NEB decided that Sinclair was too large of a failure, and they began breaking the company up. Clive was giving a 10,000 pound severance package, and the company was then dissolved. While this was happening, a former employee named Christopher Curry had created a company called Science of Cambridge LTD in 1977. They produced a risk calculator kit, which was considered a financial success, and they could keep the company running. Clive would go to leave Radionics and went to join Curry at the Science of Cambridge. And by this point, the microprocessor had arrived and was considerably cheap and this was a good thing
0: as microprocessors were cheap clive thought it was a good idea to create a microprocessor teaching kit in 1978 science of cambridge launched the mk14 kit which was based on the national scmp microchip the mk14 was a success for science of cambridge they sold over 15,000 kits at the price of about 39.95 pounds which is about 195 pounds today. And uh, that's a pretty good deal for a small little company. Now, Christopher Curry, who founded... Science of Cambridge left Science of Cambridge. He went to go find a company called Acorn Computers in 1978. And Clive decided he was going to look for the next best thing. Inspiration struck him when he saw systems like the Commodore PET, which cost about 700 pounds back then, which was equivalent to about 3,500 pounds today, which is like what, 4,000 something dollars? <laughs> it's like, that's a lot of money. So Clive saw these expensive personal computers and he thought to himself, I can make a cheaper one. And he thought he could make a personal computer that cost about a 100 pounds. It was also really important that he keep these costs down because he didn't want to get outpriced by American or Japanese computer companies, making similar computers. Which is exactly what happened with Radionics. When Sinclair Radionics was developing things like the, the Black Watch, they got outsold by Japanese and American companies producing the exact same thing. In May of 1979, the ZX80 project was started by Jim Westwood. This project was released in 1980 as a kit for 79.95 pounds, or 99.95 for a pre-built system. And the system's really well clive ended up renaming science of cambridge to sinclair computers limited and then they renamed themselves to sinclair research limited so he renamed it then he renamed it again
1: (laughs) clive really likes his last name
0: yeah, he loves it now the the zx80 is actually a really neat little device it ran on a z80 processor that clocked in at about 3.25 to 3.55 megahertz it only had one kilobyte of built-in memory but had expansion for uh, up to 16 kilobytes through a port the computer also had a thin membrane keyboard and it could connect to a tv via rf it could also store programs to tape Allowing you to write and pass off your own software to people at will. The video output was monochrome. And this actually ended up being a good thing because it meant that different broadcast standards wouldn't be an issue as monochrome signal was read differently on televisions versus color signals.
1: Interesting that his former employee, Chris Curry, went off and created his own company called Science of Cambridge. Thought yep. it was a great name. And then Sinclair joined it and then released a successful product and renamed the company twice.
0: And Curry at the time had left. Oh. Curry went to go found Acorn, which became a competitor to Sinclair Computers. So Acorn went on to go create the BBC Micro which was a direct competitor to the ZX81.
1: Chris gave him the keys and then left and went to go compete against him.
0: I do think it's kind of funny that like Chris gave him the keys and left and then Clive was like, my company now.
1: (laughs) Well, he gave him the keys to his car, essentially. Right, right,
0: right. Yeah, you can name the car whatever you want.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there's probably some sort of bad blood between them. Somewhat.
0: With the fact that there was a rivalry between the companies, it probably was bad blood. So I think Acorn and Sinclair both competed at the same time to be the BBC's choice for a computer company. Because BBC was looking for someone to produce their computer, which became the Micro. Acorn won that. So... I Which assume is a lot of government
1: Sinclair. money. Well, the ZX80 at least sold well, reaching about 50,000 in sales and helped put the UK on the map as being one of the leaders of the home computer market. Following the ZX80 was the aptly named ZX81. The system was very similar to the ZX80 beyond some cosmetic changes. One of the changes was the system could be expanded to 64 kilobyte versus the 16 kilobyte of the ZX80. The ZX81 was also inexpensive, selling for about 49.95 pounds or 204 pounds in today's money as a kit, or you could buy it fully assembled for 69.95 or 285 pounds, which I have you. You know, so you could buy a kit if you seemed if you had that desire to tinker a little bit. And back in the 80s, uh, many people who bought computers were also tinkerers. There was probably a decent sell of both kits and also fully assembled. And in fact, it would probably be like um, an organization that may have wanted a bulk of them that would probably buy them pre-assembled. Also, early
0: computer stores would often buy bulk kits versus the full right because then your
1: their employees can build them and right resell exactly exactly assembled
0: so uh that was a big thing back then that's how the apple one got its start or systems like the altair or the msi which were kit computers
1: now around this time a deal was made with the watch company timex which was based in waterbury connecticut and they released a version of the zx81 called the Timex Sinclair 1000. The Sinclair 1000 is nearly identical to the ZX81 beyond the changed label and branding, and the keyboard having dollar signs because it would be meant for the American market instead of the pound signs. Because that's the only thing that's different between us and the (laughs) (laughs) Brits. (laughs) The ZX81 is a very simple computer. In fact, it doesn't even have a power switch. This meant that it would turn on when it was plugged in. Due to the compact design, a common flaw in some older ZX80 and the Time Sinclair 1000s is a damaged ribbon cable, as the cable actually sits above the RAM chip, which would occasionally get warm when used, and essentially burn away the cable itself.
0: This was the exact problem with my Timex Sinclair 1000 that I bought for $7 at a thrift store. Um, When I plugged it in, it turned on, booted nicely, everything was good keyboard doesn't work because the ribbon cable was completely corroded and burnt up because of it where it was sitting. Now the uh, ZX81 was a massive success. It sold upward to 1.5 million units and it sold so well that Clive Sinclair was knighted and he became Sir Clive Sinclair. Man
1: I wish there was something like equivalent in the American.
0: Yeah you do something so well you get yeah.
1: Yeah you you, you but it's not even something so well like like there's awards and stuff that are given to people for Doing so well humanitarianly, but this is just this guy sold a lot of units. Yeah. <laughs> like, I want to be like, you are the best merchant ever, Seth.
0: He, it wasn't necessarily that he sold a lot of units. It was huge for the British computer market, which helped with literacy, helped with you know education,
1: and the GDP, and the
0: GDP. <laughs> so a lot of reasons that he became Sir Clive. And so, how does one follow up a massive success like the ZX eighty one? Make an even bigger success.
1: ZX eighty <laughs> two. No,
0: this time it's called the Spectrum. Uh, that's right. In nineteen eighty two, Sinclair released the ZX Spectrum. The Spectrum, again, very similar. the zx81 and the zx80 it ran on a z80 processor this was technically like a slightly updated processor it's a If you want to get technical, it's a Z80A, but the Spectrum would have a 16-kilobyte model and a 48-kilobyte model, depending on the one you bought, meaning its base RAM was 16 or 48 kilobytes. A later version would have the 128 kilobytes of RAM as its base, so you didn't really need to worry too much about expansions in this regard. Like the previous machines in the ZX line, it had a port for a tape drive. Uh, Now, unlike systems like the Commodore 64, this wasn't a proprietary port either, so you can plug in any standard three and a half millimeter jack into a system to work as a drive and later models would actually include a built-in floppy disk now i want to emphasize just how important this is if you bought a zx spectrum you brought it home you did not need to buy proprietary disk drive or a proprietary audio drive because all you needed to do is own a tape drive which a lot of people owned back then to listen to music so if you had a tape drive that you used to listen to music and you had an aux cable that you could plug into it you know three and a half a millimeter jack you can plug one into the listen one into the mic and there you have your own way to write and record programs Directly to tape for future use. And this is a huge deal because Commodore 64, the Atari computer lines, those all used proprietary hardware. You could not use an Atari data set on a Commodore. You could not use a Commodore data set on an Atari. You could not use just a random tape drive you found off the street for either system. You had to get one with a special plug. So Sinclair, I think, was really innovative in this regard. Because some other computers did this, but they was cost at a higher price. But you had what was essentially a very inexpensive computer that anyone could write and program. Like, not just games, but I mean, games was a big thing, but not just games. Anyone could do it.
1: And uh, they could sell their product. 100% and they
0: were selling their product. Um, And this is where things like the whole cover tapes that we talked about when we talked about demo discs. Cover tapes were really a thing because it was so easy to make your game. Now, programming for the Spectrum was incredibly popular due to this fact. So the idea was that you would program a game, you would save it on tape, and you would send it off somewhere sometimes, or you'd give it to your friends, and your friends would copy it. That was one way that, like, tapes would get distributed. People used to send them into magazines, and magazines would publish them. Some magazines would do what was called write-ins so a magazine would actually literally list the basic code of a game on multiple pages and you would type in that code by hand uh, sometimes be multiple pages to play this game for free and then you could save it onto tape that's really cool if you think about it like yeah it's kind of a hassle but a lot of people back then were really doing this for the experience but some of the games that were coming out on the zx spectrum were titles like manic Miner, jet set willy dizzy the hobbit and head over heels the spectrum as its name implies was in color which is also a pretty big deal it was able to utilize seven colors each with a light and dark shade and the color black so it technically had 15 colors because it would have like light red dark red (laughs) this was a limit but that didn't stop programmers from trying to make their games look as aesthetically pleasing as possible often using tricks with the graphics to give the illusion of depth or texture such as making like lots of dots on the screen to look like grass or certain lines to make it look like something has depth. And an expansion port was available for the machine which allowed players to plug in a nine pin joystick like the one that you would commonly find on an Atari or Commodore 64. So if you happen to own an Atari with a joystick There, you have your joystick for the um, ZX Spectrum. You just need the expansion port. Most games, though, could still be played with the keyboard. Uh, A lot of games actually were pretty much programmed in mind to play with the keyboard, like Manic Miner and Jet Set Willy both run really well using just keyboard commands.
1: Uh, So how well did the Spectrum do? Very well. Uh, In fact, this would be a trifecta. Sinclair was started off with 50,000 with the 80, then 1.5 million with the uh, 81, and this unit would go on to sell 5 million. Unit. The system was being sold for the low price point of 125 pounds for the 16 kilobyte model and 175 pounds for the 48 kilobyte model, which meant that the system was very affordable for the uh, the home the home market and for families to be able to get maybe their first computer entirely. The Commodore 64, which when it launched in England was at a price point uh, almost four times that at 399 pounds. So you could either dave up double triple to buy a Commodore 64, or you can get a uh, ZX Spectrum for less than that, and maybe buy some peripherals. <laughs> it would go on, as I said, selling up to 5 million units. At the time, the machine was commended for its low price point. The overall design was one of the machine that was often criticized. Specifically, the keyboard was a little bit rubbery, and it may have been rubbery. We had the membrane keyboard, but also it may have been a cost factor as well. You know, you use cheaper materials, you get cheaper rubber. Um, Zach's run into that with uh, the bootleg scene where some of the uh, cartridges just feel a little off. But they were probably cheaper to do it that way. Due to the success of this, the ZX Spectrum, it would be followed up with various revisions. The first being the ZX Spectrum Plus in 1984, which was released in October. This model had an updated keyboard and a reset button. A 128 kilobyte butt model of the machine, the ZX Spectrum 128, was released in 1985 and it looks fairly similar to the redesign of the Spectrum Plus but it's a bit longer.
0: It kind of looks like you took the Spectrum Plus and like stretched it a little bit. In
1: 1986
0: British millionaire and host of the BBC version of The Apprentice Alan Sugar acquired Sinclair and the Spectrum brand when his company purchased the brand name from Clive Sinclair and his company was Amstrad. Amstrad would release their own versions of the Spectrum the 2+, 2+, A, plus 3, the 2+, B, and the 3+, <laughs> what names? Uh, each offered each offered various updates over the next, uh, such as built-in cassette decks and the ability to run CPM, which was a popular operating system in the business world. The interesting thing I think about the later versions of the Spectrum, the 2+, and the 2+, A, they look very, very similar to the Amstrad CPC, which came out before the acquisition. So it kind of makes me wonder if Amstrad was like, you know, Sinclair seems to be doing a lot better than we are. It'd be really nice if we just released the same computer with their name on it now all amstrad spectrum models would ultimately cease production in 1992 that would be the last time that we saw a spectrum computer on the market though games would still be released such as dalek attack which came out officially in 1993 outside of the united kingdom the spectrum saw a lot of love both legally and illegally timex who had previously had worked with sinclair created the timex sinclair 2068 which was basically just a remodeled zx spectrum with updated sound and updated graphics timex of Portugal released their own Timex 2048, uh, which was compatible with Spectrum 48K software. In places like the USSR, Romania, and Czechoslovakia, various companies produced Sinclair hardware clones, unlicensed and unofficially, uh, such as the Didatic Gamma, the SIP3 CIP3, the Jet and the cobra i love hardware clone names they all sound kind of like drugs and fallout
1: more recently an fpga design which is the field programmable gate array was announced in 2013 called zx uno released as being open source for hardware firmware and software being an fpga it would emulate a zx spectrum on a hardware level So it would be essentially a ZX Spectrum. In 2014, a company called Elite Systems produced Spectrum-themed keyboards with the idea that they would be compatible with games released on iTunes and Google Play. That same year, the Spectrum Vega was announced by Retro Computers. This was a handheld that could play Spectrum games but lacked a keyboard, meaning it couldn't play most Spectrum games. They later released the Spectrum Vega Plus, Also a handheld, the Vega Plus was kickstarted and one ba- backer said that they were, quote, quite disappointed. In 2017, another FPGA-based machine, the Spectrum Next, was funded via Kickstarter. The finished machine and case were designed by Rick Dickerson, who actually unfortunately passed away during development. Um, the final system was released in 2020 to backers and has been called undeniably impressive by PC Pro, though they did criticize the lack of an index in the manual which is pretty lame criticism in my opinion
0: the situation with the spectrum vega is like a total mess in itself there's like deep dives on what happened with that kickstarter but it's basically people did not get what they were expecting and it makes like why would you put out like like you put all these games on it that require keyboards sometimes it's like like some of them required you to press a specific key. And like the key's not on the console and you couldn't map it. Anyway, that is the ZX Spectrum. An interesting little device that Seth and I don't have memory of, but we wanted to talk about because we allude to it a lot when we talk about British games. We referenced it in the Doctor Who episode and then we referenced it in the not the Fallout episode, but the one prior to that.
1: I mean, it's a pretty important piece of hardware for part of our demographic. It's not super relevant to the United States demographic, but it is to the UK demographic. It's completely 100% very relevant.
0: Yeah, and we we do apologize to our UK listeners that we've been calling it the ZX Spectrum this whole time, not the ZX Spectrum. Now, we're going to get into our Retro Rewind. Seth had me play snow brothers also known as snow bros he i'm pretty sure asked me to play the sega genesis version but there's also a nes version it was released in 1990 on a wide variety of consoles uh, though primarily started out as an arcade game created by a company called Twaplin. Twaplin, t-o-a-p-l-a-n in the game you play as a snowman and you have to stop monsters and to do this you have to throw snow at the monsters get them into a snowball shape roll them around and then throw them at the enemy that's all you do and you know what it's pretty fun. It's a bit repetitive, I would say. It's like pretty much every single screen arcade game in the world. It, you kind of do a thing, and then uh, the thing oh, ends, and then you go to the next screen. Uh, and if you do the thing fast enough, you sometimes get a bonus. I was like, this is pretty fun, but also uh, I can see myself getting pretty bored of this pretty quickly. I, I would say I would probably enjoy it more if I was playing it in an arcade, and I think it would hold up more if you were playing it in arcade versus if you were to just pick up a copy for the Sega Genesis. Genesis or the NES. So next week, Seth, I want you to play a game. And the game I want you to play is Fantastic Dizzy on the Psychogenesis slash the Mega Drive.
1: Zach had me playing Dune Battle for Arrakis. And you play as one of the three houses of your choice, um, and you build a settlement and accomplish the objectives laid out in the beginnings like any RTS games would work. I picked House of Trades, and the first time I played, I didn't know how you could build things. Uh, so I didn't actually build a complete harvest refinery. Like, it wasn't fully built, so nothing was coming to help refine things. So I just died. However, I read the advice on the mission, and it said that I should build concrete pads.
0: That's why you have to listen to your Mentat.
1: Yeah, so I... I did, and he told me to build concrete pads, so I did that. The mission screen going into it reminded me about the original Warcraft, where they had like a talking cartoon guy, and then they then they showed a map that was broken into sections and this map like pulls away except for the section that you're playing, and the units and building and how you built things, very similar to Command and Conquer. Uh, You would select your building, you would select the build process, and then you would then, once it completed building, you would then select where it goes and it would instantly build unlike warcraft where you would select where it builds first and then it builds in that location and you also have to harvest spice which could just be tiberium because it looks exactly like tiberium and you send a thing that looks exactly like the tiberian harvester to go harvest it the game for the sega genesis is is playable and it's always fun to see how they translate a real-time strategy to like a 16-bit system they did an all right job i think it actually holds up pretty well in regards to if you are in a niche situation where you really want to play a dune based rts game on your genesis i don't think you will not have a bad time i think you'll have a pretty good time actually though that's a really weird itch to scratch (laughs) honestly if you want to play a dune rts i would recommend playing the westwood dune game on the pc
0: well i think it's a bit more robust because i mean they came out around the same time i'm pretty sure but like the the pc one is just a bit more like there's just more to it
1: yeah probably because they weren't limited to a cartridge I I do think that uh, I do think Dune Battle for Arrakis does hold up. Alright, well that's going to be our episode for today. If you want to send us a, an email or reach out to us, you can always email us at ClassicGamingBrothers at gmail.com You can also follow us on our social medias. Uh, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitch, all at ClassicGamingBrothers uh, You can also follow us on Twitter at CGBrothersPod uh, Zach, is there anything else that I'm forgetting? Don't play games like my brother. And don't play games like my brother. I've been Zach. I've been Seth.
0: We have been the classic gaming brothers. That's That's right. That's right.